Amen. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. Lord, grateful for the word that we just heard in 1 Peter. You have given us the greatest gift. You and your sovereign plan have, for the world have created for yourself a people. Father God, you have called them and saved them and are now building them on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Lord, the foolishness to the world is a, a revelation of your great wisdom. For you have brought us into your family, but you have also, Lord, spread your fame throughout the world. Lord, we confess that, that we have too small of a view of you and your plans. We are easily caught up in the here and now. Lord, we lose sight of your eternal plan, your eternal goodness. Our lives are consumed with what we have in front of us. Father God, remind us to be aware of your plans, not only in our lives, but also around, in the world around us. Father God, we thank you for your creativity, for you have built for yourself a people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. You have not built through the wisdom and strength of man, but through the humble sacrifice of your son. Lord, his humble model ought to be ours to follow. For your church is built through the faithful humility of your people. Lord, we, together we thank you for being willing to have your son rejected so that we can know your saving grace. Because you have brought us near to yourself, we pray not only for us, Lord, but also for the world around us. This morning we pray for Henson Baptist Church. Lord, we thank you for, the, for several of our members that were able to attend the evangelism conference there the past couple of days. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness there in that church and their faithfulness to your gospel. Well, we pray, Lord, for the elders there, that they would lead the church in unity. Lord, we pray that you would preserve them so that they would be, continue to be a blessing to other churches, Lord, in this area. We also pray for ourselves. Uh, we pray this morning for all those, Lord, in our church who are expectant parents. Father God, we thank you for the gift of life. Uh, we pray, Lord, that those here in our church that are expecting would be faithful, Lord, in the task that you've given them, beginning now, that, that they would trust in you and not their own power. Lord, we pray that they would grow as faithful uh, parents, Lord, modeling your faithfulness. But most of all, we pray that their children would come to know you, Lord. We, we pray that in the name of your Son. And Lord, also we pray for the, the word this morning, as it is preached and brought to us um, by our guest. Lord, we thank you for uh, your faithfulness, Lord, in this church and in the church around the world. We thank you in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I'm excited to introduce to you Jared Garcia. Uh, Jared was first introduced to us as a church through our good friend Doug Payne. Do you guys remember Doug coming and preaching this last summer uh, from the branch down in Corvallis? Uh, and so Doug uh, knows what we're about. We're connected with Doug and the branch through the NCN, the Northwest Church Network. Um, and one of the things that I love about uh, how Jared is uh, viewing mission work is that it's through the church. Um, it's not something separate. Uh, and so he's going to talk to us today about the work that he does and his family does, uh, his wife Lori, uh, and then uh, their little baby Carson, uh, if you get to, a chance to meet them, um, that they do over in the Philippines. So they're in the northern part of the Philippines uh, on an island called Luzon. I might mispronounce these so you can help me, in a place called Baguio City. Did I say that right? Sweet. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and so he's going to be uh, teaching us through the book of Ephesians, so you can open up to the book of Ephesians. Um, and he's going to be talking about what he does in Pine City Baptist Church uh, and uh, working with pastors in that area as well. So I'm excited to have him uh, bring the word to us this morning. There you go. Maybe that works. Okay. Thankful to be here. Thank you for your hospitality. Um, me and my wife uh, work with an agency called Reaching and Teaching. We have about 88 um, global workers around the world. And our desire is to do deep discipleship 
um, train local leaders and establish healthy churches. Those are like the three main tasks. Um, so everyone from reaching and teaching is doing one or more of those three things um, around the world. Um, uh, deep discipleship, training local leaders, and establishing healthy churches. And we want to do that in northern Philippines. Um, I'll share more tonight, if you'll be here, um, about what we want to do. Um, but one of the things that Hans asked me is, what motivates you to go to the Philippines? And we could answer that in many different ways. Um, there are many different ways that motivates us. There's, there's a great need. There's um, your giftedness. You, you know the language. You grew up there. You know the culture. How about, how about go there, right? God has kind of equipped you in that special way. Um, maybe you're more suited to go over there. And all those are correct answers. Um, I think to answer that question is is multifaceted. There's just no one answer. Or you could go biblically, hey, Matthew 28. Um, This is the commission of the king with all authority um, and be compelled by that. Or the love of Christ compels us um, to be ambassadors to wherever. Um, And there are many kinds of answers to that question. It makes me think, like, so I, I really thought through this question um, maybe, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. What exactly we want to do? Why we want to do this? How do we explain this succinctly as I can? And we're working on this phrase and then trying to make it clear, crystal clear. And, and, and it's this phrase that you have on your screen. Is it on your screen? We want to go to the Philippines because God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches. And we want to see that happening in northern Philippines. Um, and as I was saying this, many people made comments, oh, yeah, that's a great phrase, you know. Um, but here's the question. Is that a biblical phrase? Maybe it's a good phrase, it's true, but is that a biblical phrase? It's not really true that God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches. How, why, when, where in the Bible? And I want to propose to you that Paul actually writes an entire letter to a church in Ephesus to just say this simple sentence that God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches. So if I could invite you, if you're probably already there, Ephesians, and we're going to look into this entire letter. Because we're going to look into the entire letter, we're not going to go into deep details of everything that's in this letter. It's a wonderful letter. But we're just going to look if this is true from, from this sentence in Scripture. Um, is it really true that God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches? Or am I just trying to be cool with a phrase? Uh, I just want to sound like John Piper. Um, But is this sentence really biblical? When Paul wrote this letter to Ephesians, unlike his other letters, the letter to Ephesians, or to Ephesus, Ephesians, is what we call um, a letter that is not, not occasional. What do I mean by that? See, when Paul writes, for example, a letter to the, the, the letter to Galatians, the Galatians letter, he writes because there's false teaching. So I'm going to write this letter. Or there's conflict, so I'm going to write 2 Corinthians to fix this thing. Or there is a lot of problems in the church in Corinth, so I'm going to write First Corinthians, I mean, you know, what we know as First Corinthians, to address the problems in Corinth. I want to say thank you to my supporters and give them some instructions, so I'm going to write Philippians to the church in Philippi. Um, there's this church that I've never met, that I've never met and they have some, some errors that's going on in there, so I'm going to write this, church, this letter to 
the church in Colossae, Colossians. But unlike those letters, Ephesians is kind of different. It's so different that people who don't believe the Bible, people who don't really believe in the gospel, would claim that Ephesians was not written by Paul. It's not written by Paul. It's not very personal. There's like, the, the reason is because it's written for a different purpose. He loved Ephesus. He's, he spent years in Ephesus. Um, Acts 20 talks about uh, the relationship that Paul had with the elders in the church in Ephesus, how they cried because they're not going to see Paul anymore. Paul's going to go to Rome, and who knows what's going to happen to Paul. So there's that relationship, and then when you read Ephesians, you don't feel that. The reason is, Paul is writing a letter just to teach. Is it possible? But that's just, there's no occasion. I'm just going to write you a letter to teach this simple thing that God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches. That's probably not the phrase that Paul will use. Uh, but that's my summary of Paul's letter. So two questions I'm going to ask this morning from the book of Ephesians, or what the letter of Ephesians is trying to answer. Two questions. What is God doing in the world today? What is God doing in the world today? That's Ephesians 1 to 3. Paul is going to tell us, Paul is going to write a mystery, something that has not been revealed before. I'm going to show you. I'm going I'm to open the curtains of heaven and show you background. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you this is kind of like if, if you're watching a movie, this is the um, behind the scenes, behind the curtain. The director's cut. I'm going to show you the witness, some, a little small glimpse in heaven, in the mind of God, of what he's doing in the world today. And then chapters 4 to 6, what should we do or how should we live in light of what God is doing? What God is doing, chapters 1 to 3, what we should be doing or how should we live because of what God is doing, chapters 4 Two, six. I'm going to read Ephesians 1 in the first 14 verses. I don't know if that's too small, but you could read it. Hopefully you could read it or in your copy of Scripture. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A few observations from this text. Since we're trying to cover the entire letter of Ephesians, we will not explain every single thing that's going on in this, in this verses here. But this verses really is worth considering. Having said that, it's worth considering. Maybe spend an afternoon, spend tonight, read through this again. What is it that God the Father is doing in us? It says here, Paul is saying, all spiritual blessings have been given to you. Every spiritual blessing. Here are some of them. Here, here's a list. 
In the original language, in, in, in the Greek, this, this is actually one sentence. And if you're an English teacher, you would say, well, that's, that's a bunch of run-on sentences that you should not write. But, but, but what's happening is Paul is just so overwhelmed with all the spiritual blessings that we have received from the Father through the Son and the Spirit, in, in Christ through the Spirit, that he's just like, I'm just going to, I don't care if it's run-on sentences, right? I'm just going to list after list after list of things about what, what the Father has done to us. And the effect of this is to, to overwhelm us. This is like, um, it's like introducing a professional athlete. What do they do when, when, you know, someone's just, the guy is just going to walk to the court, right? Why such a long introduction? No, it's like, you know, six-time champion, six-time finals MVP, five-time most valuable player, four-time all-star, ten-time first NBA team, two-time slam dunk contest champion from North Carolina, it's supposed to like, oh, look, oh, oh, wow, he's this, he's that, he's, you know. It's supposed to like, wow, the audience a little bit. Well, Paul is doing the same thing, but even greater. He's saying, I'm going to tell you every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. And I'm just going to spill them. It's not exhaustive. There are more than this, but it's long enough to overwhelm you. This is what the Father has done for us. You're elected. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You're to be homely, to be blameless. He predestined you to adoption. You're part of his family. You've been redeemed through his blood. There's forgiveness of sin. You've been lavished by grace in all wisdom and insight. Um, you have obtained inheritance. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Like, it's just a whole lot of lists that you, they're overwhelmed. Like, I want to spend, you know, more time on each one. And, and, and savor it a little bit more. But here's another question. Who is Paul writing? Who, who's the audience here? We'll say, well, to the saints that are in Ephesus. But one thing we notice that this, this letter, or this, this whole sentence here, is written... Not really to individual believers. So sometimes we feel this when, if you've been a Christian for a long time, like, I am chosen in Christ, I have been redeemed, I have been forgiven, and those are all true. But Paul's emphasis is not really like you as an individual believer. Notice the plural terms. This is the Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us in Christ Jesus, uh, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him. He predestined us for adoption. He blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. He lavished upon us riches and grace. Um, uh, in him we obtained an inheritance. And one of the things that we don't notice is the you Every single you in the letter to, 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 to Ephesians, right, to the Ephesus, every single you is actually plural. So where I live, we say y'all, right? That's y'all, y'all. Um, so in him, you all also. When you all heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, you all your salvation, we acquired the possession of it. The guarantee of our inheritance. It's all plural. What's happening here? God is saving for himself, not just individuals. And sometimes that's how we think. But God is saving for himself a people. A people. Yes, he saved you individually, and you need to make that personal decision of faith, personal action of faith, but... He's not just saving you. He's saving a people. You're part of a people. And, and, and as we continue reading through Ephesians, we'll, we'll see that um, even clearer as we keep going. But not only are he saving a people, there's, there's a, a phrase that's repeated three times. I don't know if you caught it. 
It's mentioned in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. God is doing everything. The Father is doing all these things. Predestined us, chose us in Him. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then he focuses a little bit on what Christ has done. In the beloved, we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Verse 12, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And then the Holy Spirit. That we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory. A Trinitarian praise. Repeated phrase, the chorus, the refrain repeated in this short section. What is happening? What is Paul trying to say? God, this is what God is doing in the world today. God is saving a people to the praise of his glory. That's what God is doing. And many of these things are hard to understand that after this, after verse 14, Paul is going to talk about, and I'm praying for you. And you know what? One of my prayer is that you would understand what I just said. There's a lot of things, a lot of Deep theology in verses 1 through 14. So in verse 16, he said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What is he praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, verse 17, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? I want you to understand these things. It's not going to take a quick, you know, reading. It might take a while. It might take even years. But I want you to understand this and grow in your understanding of this. All these great things that God is doing to those who believe. And as we're understanding these things, Paul ends this way. Chapter 1. The Christ who was raised from the dead, that's the one that made all these things possible. And he put Christ... Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, everything under Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is God doing in this world today, God is saving a people for his glory. And as he's doing it, he's putting everything else under the authority of Christ as the head of the church. So all things, as he's, he's saving a people for God, and everything is under the authority of Christ, everything is under his feet. If, if imagine the picture, everything is under the feet of Christ, everything is under Christ. Where's the church? The, the, vicious, the picture is, the, the church is not really under his feet. The church is, he is the head. The church is his body. So it's through the church that Christ is exercising his authority. And everything else is placed under his feet. So God is saving a people, putting Christ as the head through the church. It's through his people. And so Christ would say at the end of Matthew 28, all things are under his authority. All authority. All authority in heaven and in earth is mine. And then he commands and says, go therefore, make disciples. Make, uh, I am putting all things under my feet as God is doing Right now, through the resurrection, all things are under his feet. And with all authority, go proclaim about this Christ who rose again. 
It's through the church that God is doing this. When you get to Ephesians 2, Paul now continues the story of grace, this reality that took place in the lives of the Ephesian church. And he starts with this, And you were dead in trespass and sins, in which you all at once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. And if you are not a follower of Christ, this is a description really of everyone in the world, everyone who's born in this world. This is how we walked. We walked under the power of the prince of the power of the air, under the influence really of the evil one. We live after our own passions. What is it that you want? Follow your heart. Follow your dream. What it, you cut me off in traffic. It's all about me. And so we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have really no hope of making us alive in, in our own. We are children of wrath, children of disobedience. And I have a one-year-old um, he's 13 months, he's close to 14 months. And before he was one, he was, I think he was like six months. And he was about, I couldn't remember if it's an outlet socket that he wants to touch or something that's small items that, you know, it might be a choking hazard. He was going after something and I said, hey, no, stop, no. And he looks at me and he says, and he goes after it. Where did he learn to disobey? He's only six, you know? Like, what? We sheltered him from all kinds of evil influences, right? It's only six months. It's inside. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And yet, verse 4 says, but God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. You cannot make yourself alive. God has to do this. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're a guest today and you're probably wondering, like, what are these things that he's talking about? You cannot be saved. You cannot have a right relationship with God by your own strength. Religion can only take you so far. Someone outside of you has to make you, has to resuscitate you, has to do that divine CPR and bring life into your dead soul. Someone has to do that work. In verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is what Christianity, this is what Christians believe. It's God's goodness, His grace towards us that we receive through faith, through believing in Him. And this is not our own doing. It's God's gift. Not the result of works so that we can't boast. It's not because of us and how good we are and how smart we are. It's all God's work. But why? Why is God doing this? For what purpose? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show or showcase the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why is God saving sinners? Here's an answer. So that he would showcase in the coming ages his grace. So we call trophies of God. What's the purpose of a trophy? 
Um, some people, they have trophies and, and, you know, they're collecting dust. That's why we have them in the attic. But for some people, you know, like trophies, that's, you know, you have trophy cases. And you display that to show people or your guests at home that, you know, in 1954, I won this award, Best Smile, Salem, Oregon, Right? <laughs> Like of all the people in Salem, Oregon, in 1954, I had the best smile, right? And that's your boasting, right? That's your like, look, look. The trophy makes people say, wow, what an achievement. Wow, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this man. Look at this woman. Look at this young person. That's what trophies do, right? You display them, show them. What is God doing in the ages to come? What is his trophy? His trophy is the people who he will save. Like, look. Look at my grace. These people are dead in sin. They, they're rebels. They, they have nothing to do with, they're not going to be saved on their own. But look, I have showed them my grace because I'm a gracious God. How do you know? Look. Look at the people that I'm saving for my glory. Look, and that is specifically, so we're getting more specific now. How is he getting glory by saving a people? He's getting glory by showing them, and here's my grace. Look at them. And where is he doing this? He's doing this to the cosmos. He's doing this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, why is he doing this? What, what, what's the significance of this? I'm trying to think through. In the parables of Jesus, Jesus said that when a sinner repents, angels, one sinner who repents, angels are having a party, right? They're rejoicing. What great rejoicing are they doing? And I'm trying to make a connection here. This is a little bit sidebar here, a little bit. When angels sinned, Satan, one of the, Lucifer, right? Bright angel, probably the best of all the angels. And a host that followed him. When they sinned and rebelled against God, there was no second chance. There is no grace. That's it. When Adam sinned, created in the image of Christ, created in the image of God, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus said, oh, I'm going to make a promise. The child from the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. I'm going to make a promise from Abraham. There's going to be a seed who will bless all the families of the earth. I'm going to make a promise from David. It's going to be a king who will reign forever. I'm going to make a promise. There is hope for humanity. There is grace. And, and angels are fascinated by this. That's why they rejoice when one sinner repents. Like, what a wonder. Grace is just something that they're like, whoa, this is so great. And sometimes we are not amazed by grace because we, we have such a low view of sin that we have, not, we have no idea how much we have offended a holy God. A holy God with pure, absolute holy, absolutely unique, and how our sin has offended that. Only when we understand what that really is like do we say, wow, what a grace, undeserved favor. And the angels get it. And so we are the trophies. We display the grace of God. The church, God's people, whom he saves, displays the glory of God. What happens when he does this? Verse 11. Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision which is, made, which is called the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh of hands. Remember, you were at the time, Gentiles, not Jews, Gentiles were separated from Christ, 
I like the Jews who have the Old Testament, who have the privileges, the spiritual privileges of Revelation. The Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who made us both one, has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Angel, uh, angels, Gentiles and Jews, they don't go together. They're, they're mortal enemies. Jews have nothing to do with the Gentiles. They don't like the Gentiles that they call them dogs. And that's not a term of endearment. Oh, these dogs, right? Maybe for you who don't like cats, maybe that's how you, oh, cats, right? Um, that's how they call it. They don't, like, they don't like the Gentiles. This is why there's such a conflict in many places in the New Testament because Jews and Gentiles, now we're living together, now we're together. How, do, how does this work? How does this relationship work? But with Christ, he unites to them a people. We're getting more specific now as we are going here. Christ is not just saving a people for his glory. He's doing this how? By displaying his grace for all the world to see. This is my grace. Look. But not only that, I am saving for, for God is saving for himself a people by uniting them as one body in Christ. Jews, Gentiles, together, united. Doesn't matter what race. Does it matter where you're from? That's why we're going to the nations. This is part of God's calling. He's uniting for himself a people. You're no longer, verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're now fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household or family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the image that we read earlier in 1 Peter. Right? We're living stones put together, building up each part. You know, with, with Christ as the, the, the cornerstone, prophets and apostles were the, were, were the foundation and then each of us is just being built. That's the image. That's the metaphor. We're being built together as one structure. Each part, we're all together. We're intermingled. We're intermixed. This is why, uh, if you know the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, there's, these are missionaries who were killed in Ecuador. Um, Nate, by, by, by the tribe people that were there, right? Um, uh, Nate Saint was speared to death. He was the pilot. And then years later, his son goes back to the same jungle where his dad was, was killed. And he meets the people that killed his father. But this time, these people have now been converted to Christianity. And he said, he didn't say, you killed my father, prepare to die. That's not what he said. <laughs> you killed my father. But now we have the same heavenly father. Come and welcome. I welcome you. What? The person who killed your dad? And you're now friends? And not only friends, they brought him to America. Like his children love this guy. He's like an uncle to them. They brought him to America to attend a high school graduation. Like, we want him to come to my graduation, dad. Can you make him come? And all the people who knew the story... Like, he's bringing the murderer who killed his own dad and to his family? That's what the gospel does. It reunites enemies together. That's what God is doing in the world today. He's building for himself a people, a united people, as one body in Christ. Why? Why is God doing this? Chapter 3. Paul is talking about that this is his work, his preaching, his letting know about the gospel that unites people. Why? Verse 10. So that through the church, P 
people who are united. Dead who are now made alive. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. So I ask you, don't lose heart when I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is what Paul is saying. God is doing all this, what? So that through the church, he would show his manifold wisdom that it might be made known to the cosmos. What is God doing in the world today? He's saving a people for His glory. He's saving a people to showcase His grace. And we're getting more specific as the letter progresses. <coughs> He's saving a people by uniting them together into one body, the church, to display His manifold wisdom for all angelic beings, for all the world to see. Look, that you would know that I am God. And that is really God's glory. This is what he's been doing for ages. This is his eternal promise. This is behind the scenes. What is God doing? What is he up to? He's saving a people for his glory. And the church is a visible presentation of that. Look at these people. Look, how can they be all together? How can Duke fans in, oh, this is from my, from my neck of the woods. Duke fans in North Carolina fans be in one building, Right? I don't know what it is here, right? I'm from Washington State. So how is this Washington State guy here in Oregon, right? Invited here. Because we're all united together. It's displaying the manifold wisdom of God. So the church displays the glory of God. How do you see the glory of God? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. That's true. Creation displays the glory of God. But even greater than creation, it's the church. The church shows this wisdom. How, how are people together? How does that make sense? How are people who are dead in trespasses and sins alive? How are people? This guy used to be a drug addict. There's just no hope for this guy. How is he now a deacon? You cannot explain that apart from grace. And what does that do? It shows you this. Look at this. The glory of God. The glory of God. The glory of God. The church displays the glory of God. That's chapters 1 through 3. How does he end the chapter? He ends with a benediction. He's just overwhelmed with this. He praises God. Verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory. Where? To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To Him be glory in the church. That is what God is doing in the world today. But then the statement doesn't say, we are going to go to the Philippines. We are excited about missions because God's glory is displayed in the church. That is true. Everywhere that the gospel is being preached, God's glory is there. It's displaying God's glory. Every gospel preaching church displays God's glory. But the statement says God's glory is displayed most visibly. Through healthy churches. Well, where did I get that from? That's not. Chapters 1 to 3 says anywhere the people get saved, anywhere the gospel is preached and the church is formed, God's glory is there. Well, Paul is not done yet. There's three more chapters chapters 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 4, verse 1, here's what Paul said Therefore, I therefore, as a prisoner, for the Lord, urge you. So Paul is just done teaching. In chapters 1 to 3, there are no commands. 
He is just telling you what God is doing in the world today. It's more, it's teaching. Chapters 4 to 6, now here are all the commands. Because of what God is doing in the world today, here now is what we should be doing. Here is how we should live. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This has been, this is a great calling that God, that God has done in Christ through the church. Now walk worthy of that. And if you're looking through Ephesians, you will find that Paul would mention the word walk, I think five times, one, two, three, four, five, five times. Walk worthy, don't walk as the Gentiles walk, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom through the Spirit, and then he would end with a stand, stand against the schemes of the devil. So some people would say, five walks, one stand. And that's probably the best way to think about chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians. I'm just going to state it differently um, to make it more tangible. How do you walk? How do you live? I'm going to mention six things. Right? We're going to go quickly. Six things of how you should live. Chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthy. How? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That is, that is putting up with one another. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do you walk? It's true. Unity. Church unity. So I can say it this way. God's glory is displayed most visibly through church unity. So God's glory is already there in the church. But what, what a church that's united, what it does, it's polishing that diamond. The glory is there, but it's a little rough. You know, it's like it just came from the mine. Right? So, sometimes it, in Baguio City, the city where we'll be going, um, right near there is a, it used to be a gold mine. Um, now you can still mine stuff, but it's, it's, it's hard to find, you know, because it, it's almost, the ore is almost gone, right? But there are still some, and you can see that right on the streets, but people are not stealing them for some reason. Um, there are ores, but they just look like rocks. And rocks and mud. But those are actually like, hey, wait, there might be a little bit of gold in there. It's probably not worth that much. You know, it's probably a dust of gold. But, but rocks and mud. Rocks and mud doesn't look very nice. Like, you don't display that, right? Uh, unless you're, you know, a second grader, right? You know? Um, so, so what do you do? You look in that ore, you open it up like, hey, where's the gold in here? Where's the gold in here? Where's the diamond in here? And then you polish it, you polish it, you polish it. You want to display that glory of that diamond most visibly. So God's glory is in the church. God is glorified in the church. He, he displays his glory in the church. But when a church is even more, it's, it's united, what is it doing? It's displaying that glory most visibly. It's polishing that diamond. It's, it's, say, it's making it clear and obvious. Look at the glory of God. It's here, but look at it. We're polishing it so, you could look, so it would shine. When a church is, the people of the church is filled with humility, with gentleness, with patience. They're putting up with one another in love. They're maintaining the unity that's already there. What is it doing? It's displaying the glory of God most visibly. How do you explain that they're loving one another, that they're patient, that you're, they're humble, they're gentle? How do you explain that? It's God's grace, God's manifold wisdom. We're displaying it to you so you can see it instead of hiding it through our slander and disunity and fighting no, we, we want to display, display the unity that's already there. What else? Chapter 7. 
Christ, um, the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has gifted the church. With what? With people. Verse 11, he gave, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why did Christ give these things to the church, gifted men? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What's the goal? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the measure and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. God is giving churches gifted men. We're raising up leaders in the churches who are ordained evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip who? The church. So, who does the ministry? It's not, we're not hiring pastors so that they would do the ministry. The pastors are to equip the body so the body would do the ministry. So that the body would have a culture of evangelism and a culture of discipleship. That they want to reach out their neighbors and friends. That the whole body, everyone is doing ministry. And the role of these leaders is to equip them. Why? Verse 14. So that, they, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by, every wa- by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Maturity, Christian maturity. So we would grow in the faith. God's glory is displayed most visibly through godly leaders using the gifts of preaching and evangelism and discipleship in sound doctrine. If this is going on in a church, that church is displaying the glory of God most visibly. Chapter 4, verse 17. This is a lengthy section until chapter 5, verse 14. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And here Paul is using the term Gentiles as, as, as a metaphor for unbelievers. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, given themselves to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity, Don't live like this. Why? Verse 20. But that is not, the Gentiles, that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, about Christ, and were taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that you really have come to know Christ. If you have come to know Christ... These things that your former life, when you were without Christ, is no longer a reality in your life. And Paul assumes, I love that word, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him. Paul assumes that the people in the Ephesian church have come to know Christ because they claim that they, that they know Christ. So you claim to know Christ So I'm assuming that this is no longer part, this is not how you've learned Christ. Can I call this, is it a stretch to call this church membership? Paul is assuming that you, since you're part of the Ephesian church, you testify that you've known Christ. So I'm assuming that this is not how you've learned Christ. So you should not walk like this. How does he know that? Because they're, by being part of the Ephesian church. Because you're part of this church, you've testified that you know Christ, then you should not be walking like this. You should not be living like this. So he makes this command, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. That is corrupt your deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's the reason. Because we're members one of another. 
put away falsehood. Why? Because we're members here in this church. Be angry, do not sin. Um, give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But instead, honest work with his own hands. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Um, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And verse 32, be kind to whom? To one another. Context of a local church. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. Why am I living all these ethical things? These this things. It's not so that we could be saved. It's so that we could be Christians. No, because we were already Christians. Now we're displaying God's glory most visibly. When, when people in the church forgive one another, you know what you're doing? You're displaying what Christ, how Christ has forgiven you. You're displaying God's glory most visibly. Chapter 5, verse 18. So, so, so here's my summary. God's glory is displayed most visibly through holy living and meaningful membership. Number five, God's glory is displayed most visibly through, um, oh, number four, sorry, number four. God's glory is displayed most visibly through corporate worship or congregational worship. Chapter five, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what is the result of being filled with the Spirit? You're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we just did that earlier. And when we do that, when we gather every Sunday and we sing, what are we doing? We are displaying the glory of God most visibly. So the people or guests would come and see and listen, why are they why are they all crazy about all these songs? Like, look at the words of the songs. This is what God has done in us. And that's why we're rejoicing and we're celebrating this. What we're doing, we're displaying God's glory most visibly. Number five, God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy family relations in the church. And this is probably the most familiar text of Ephesians. If, if I tell you, book of Ephesians, what do you think about? You know, it's like, oh yeah, husbands, you know, love your wives and wives with your, your husbands and children obey your parents. Probably the most familiar section of Ephesians. So we're not going to take the whole time um, to, to read this. But just a few examples. Paul connects the husbands' sacrificial love for their wives to Christ's love for the church. In fact, the marriage is created to display Christ's love for the church, not the other way around. Therefore, God's glory is displayed most visibly when husbands in congregations love their wives the same way that Christ loved their church. When you are loving your wife, when you are being faithful to your wife, when you are dying to self, Every day, you're displaying how Christ gave his life for his church. And you would say, that is so hard. You don't know the wife I have. Die every day. And you would say, you know what? You're displaying Christ's love who died and gave himself for the church. That's what you're doing. And for wives to submit, you're displaying the church's submission to Christ the head. And for, for, for parents, um, when you're nourishing and you're not, um, you're nourishing your children and you're not provoking them to anger, you are displaying how God the Father treats his children. How does God the Father treat you? How is the Father being kind? When you ask for bread, he does not give you a serpent or a scorpion. How is the Father good? You're displaying the glory of God is displaying the Father's love for his children. And children, when you obey your parents, what are you doing? And sometimes we think, man, my parents ask me to do this. It's really stupid. 
And maybe it is. But you know what Ephesians tells us? Children, obey your parents. Why? For this is right. When you obey your parents, even though it's stupid, you are, sometimes, it's, most of the time it's not stupid, by the way. But maybe, maybe sometimes it is. But what you're doing is you are displaying the righteousness of God. What a motivation. What a privilege. I'm going to obey my mom, my dad, to, you know, take this left over to our neighbor. I think it's a stupid idea. We should have, you know, maybe not leftovers, but actually cook, you know, real food. But I'm just going to obey my parents. Why? Because by doing this, I'm displaying the righteousness of God. Let that motivate you. God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy family relationships. Last. <laughs> and Paul says it's last because he says in chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. All right, I gave away. You can see the slide. I gave away my, my thunder here. Remember the youths in Ephesians? They're plural. If you grew up in Sunday school, I grew up in Sunday school. I, you know, it's really fun. Ephesians 6, armor of God. You have this shield. You have this maybe an image of a buff Roman soldier with a shield, with a belt, with, a, you know, with, with the sword of the Spirit, with the helmet of salvation, and he's ready to fight. That's not the image we have here. Paul is not saying that you individually go, go fight against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and roars and roars of darkness. Like, dude, I, me? That's not the image. Paul said, you all, you congregation, you church. The image is not one individual soldier. The image is an army. Fight against the evil one. God's glory is displayed most visibly when we fight sin together. You can't do it on your own. When we do this, when we find an accountable person, like, man, I'm struggling with this. I need someone else. Brother, can you help me? Sister, can you help me? I'm really working on this. I'm really struggling in my marriage. I'm really struggling with this. Could you pray for me? Could you help me? What passages of Scripture could you share to help me think through this? When a church is doing that, you know what you're doing? You're polishing. You're polishing that ring, that diamond. You're displaying God's glory most visibly. So this is not a cliche that God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches. This is... Paul may not summarize this letter like that, but as you read Ephesians, that's what's, that's what's happening. Paul's letter to the Ephesians demonstrates that truly God's glory is displayed most visibly through healthy churches. So as we go to the Philippines, as you think of us, as you pray for us, one of the things we want to see is that we want to see healthy churches established in northern Philippines. Training pastors, assisting in church planting. And we don't want to see just churches, we want to see healthy churches. But that's not only true of us, it's true in Oregon. It's true anywhere in the world. We want to see God's glory shine, and just like how the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk would say. We want to display most visibly in Salem, Oregon, in Baguio City, Philippines, we want to see healthy churches reflecting God's wonderful and spectacular glory. If you're not a Christian, this is what Christianity is about. It's not about ourselves. If you think Christians are just, you know, 
they're just conservative and they're just proud. Like, like what Christians are really about, if you read the scripture, read the Bible, they're about God's glory. They're saved by God's glory. They want to live life for God's glory. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we're called to do. We're called to live life in the local church and display God's glory in our life in the context of the gathered people. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would use your word to convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, that we would display your glory here in Salem, Oregon, true mission fellowship. Use the elders of this church. Use the people. Use the members. Glorify yourself, Father. And if anyone here who is not a Christian, I pray that you would save them from their sins, that they would repent and believe in Jesus alone. In Jesus' name, amen.